here. But it's just airplanes, so it's not, it's it's, not really no this is This is the best seat now. It's, it's got a runway in the front yard. <laughs> Did you guys see this video? Did you see this uh, Red Bull Air Race video? I, it's... it's Listeners, I apologize, videos, but it's a simple to describe. Okay, so Red Bull Air Races, we've all seen these videos of these guys yanking and banking through these, uh, I don't know what, you know, tissue paper pylons, all right, um, usually over water, all right, and this one was over water, uh, and uh, and this particular <laughs> pilot um, just apparently... I remember this at the time, it was like... When Dude, was this? Was this a long, yeah, this was in 2010. Oh yeah, so this guy I just saw this video. Um the guy so he 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 apparently pulled a little too hard and rolled a little bit too much and uh and stalled some sort of accelerated stall um about I don't know what 50 feet off the water and uh and managed to recover like just as he was touching the water. I mean, and he dragged enough of the airplane to damage it and uh, but not disable it and managed to get control. I mean, you know, Couple oh more. yeah, he damaged the wing tip. He tore off a wheel pad. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and you know, I mean, if that airplane had settled, I don't know what, a couple inches more. I mean, it could have gotten really dramatic. Um, but he managed to just kind of drag the the airplane in the water for a you know a couple of airplanes lengths, I guess, and then uh, managed to climb out again and and cl- climb. He obviously boarded the flight right away and climbed to altitude and got it under control and, and landed it back at the airport or whatever. Got enough power, you can fly a brick. Yeah, well, and, and those airplanes, what kind of airplane is that? I'm not familiar with these um, kinds of... I of, think uh, that's an extra, I don't know. It's what? an extra-like for sure, yeah. I don't know if it's actually an extra, but I remember them, I was watching the video that goes with it and I, they, they described, they named the aircraft and I don't remember them saying extra because I would have okay. noticed that, but whatever, whatever model it's, it was. There's yeah. there's two or three manufacturers of right. uh, this kind of unlimited, uh, and even you know these oh these have a little bit of extra done to them too, uh, like God knows how much horsepower they're pulling. Yeah, yeah, and that, that you know the word experimental labeled uh, on the side of the fuselage really means something. Yeah, um, um, only God knows what they're, what the engine's doing. Yeah, but. Pilot um, Matt Hall is the uh, pilot's name. Um, this was, uh, let's see now, where was this? Is this it's Dateline Windsor, Ontario. Windsor, is that yeah. where the actual... Uh, Matt Hall is from Australia. Uh, yeah, okay, so is uh, Matt Hall, this is from the... This is from the uh, from the uh, description, the YouTube uh, description field here, um, it appears to be a, a, a paste, cut and paste of a story about it. Windsor, Ontario, Australia's Matt Hall had a scare during the first qualifying session at the Red Bull Air Race in Windsor on Saturday when his plane touched the surface of the Detroit River. Oh, okay. But the former yeah. RRAAF pilot quickly recovered and returned to, to safely to the race airport. So this is over in Tupper's uh, neck of the woods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a hundred horsepower or less. I'm not sure he would have gotten out of that. Yeah, yeah, it, it was pretty dramatic. I mean, it, I mean, you kind of watch it and you go, okay, well, it was a nothing burger, but man, it wasn't. It was close to being a, a was, big was, burger, and uh, yeah. you know, um, <laughs> it, it was, you know, yeah, it would have been a carbon sandwich. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what would happen if this thing came to a stop suddenly in the water. Whether that guy would have, I don't know how they. I suppose he could get out of these strapped in pretty good. Maybe he'd survive the the quote-unquote impact and uh and i wonder how easily stains come out of the fire <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i'm sure they had a chance to find that out in any event um so uh so that was that was a thing 
Now, speaking of going into the water, and this is a much more serious, well, I mean, the, the, the Matt Hall thing was a serious story too, but this, this is a big, big story. It was in the news in the last couple of weeks of this uh, Delta flight that skidded off the end of the runway at LaGuardia. It was like about two weeks ago now or something like that. Yeah. And uh, Actually, it wasn't the end of the runway. It was the side of the runway. Was it really? They, he got sideways and, or got, uh, got well, sliding side, sideways? The, the, you know, the, the investigation is ongoing. Okay. Uh, the airplane touched down on um, uh, 1-3 at La Garbage uh, and um, started to trend to the left of the runway. Mm-hmm. Um, don't know if it was crew or mechanical or both or neither or what, but it was... The crew apparently did try to to you know correct the drift, mm-hmm. um, but uh, the airplane exited the runway to the left side of the runway ah, to, okay. the, to the north of the runway. In this instance, say again, what kind of airplane this was? It's an MD eighty eight. Okay. Now I saw a story. I'm sorry, Jeff, continue. No, no, no. Go ahead. I, I just this is probably nothing. I saw a story that referenced some report that some sort of braking system switch was in a position that seemed notable. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, yes and no. Um, what was that all about? You, well, you, the NTSB. Hang on a second. The NTSB has put out a couple of. Uh, news releases, uh, updates on their investigation. One of them, let's see, second update, 1086. Um, let's see, airplane departed. This is um, a release dated March 9. Um, airplane departed the left side of the run- of runway 13, about 3,000 feet from the approach end of the runway. The tracks are on a heading of about 10 degrees from runway heading. Mm. 4,100 feet from the approach end of the runway, the airplane's left wing struck the airport's perimeter fence. Um, 5,000 feet from the approach end of the runway, the airplane came to rest with its nose over the berm. Let's see. Maintenance records, last major maintenance, operations. Um, The automatic spoilers did not deploy, but the first officer quickly deployed them manually. Auto brakes were set to max, but... Um, this is this is based on the crew statements. Uh, auto brakes were set to max, but they did not sense any wheel brake deceleration. Captain reported he was unable to prevent the aircraft from drifting left. Hmm, okay. Um, flight data recorder. Autopilot was engaged until the airplane was about 230 feet above ground, which is nominal. Uh, airspeed during final approach was about 140 knots, and touchdown occurred at about 133 knots. That's nominal. Um, the airplane's heading deviated to the left, and it departed the runway shortly after touchdown. There were degradations in recorded signal quality around the time the airplane departed the runway, and extraction and verification of the data is continuing. Um, that apparently is the last update. Mm-hmm. Let's see here. Uh, yeah, that was the, the second and final update available on the NTSB website. Yeah. Two things I find notable about this this event, this this story. Um, the first is the, the first images I saw that came out of this when it, it went just after it happened were, as is so often these days, were social media pictures that uh, that uh, apparently passengers or people who were on the airport um, grounds took of this aircraft with its nose up on this berm and the the shoots de- uh, the uh, you know the the slides deployed and uh, and and people coming out onto the onto the runway. 
and and the initial from the very beginning the reports reports were this plane came to a halt in a very dramatic fashion but no one was seriously hurt or hurt at all and everybody got off the airplane and and you know no harm no foul um a little bit later on, I was pointed to some pictures of this incident from the other side of the berm. And what's uh-huh. not apparent from these pictures that came from the airport side is that that berm was basically the edge of a bay. There was water right, right. on the other side of that bar- berm. Right. In fact, the nose of the aircraft might have been over water. Right? Yeah. And, and so the thing I find notable about this is that this could have been this was really close to being a major tragedy i mean if this airplane had slid another half airplane length all right anything could happen it could have gone into the water i mean just this was a this was close this could have been, could have been another air florida like thing where yeah. you've got a water rescue uh in cold weather yeah and yeah yeah so this is i mean wow that that was just you know astounding to me so that was one thing I found notable. The other thing I found notable about this story is something that you and you and, and Dave and I talked about offline a, a little bit. Um, a story that came out of this and, and is um, apparently as people were evacuating this aircraft, um, they didn't simply get up and evacuate the aircraft. There were people grabbing their personal luggage. There were apparently people who actually tried to go into the overheads to get their suitcases and whatnot um, it, before evacuating this airplane. And yeah, well, the flight attendants are telling them, please, ladies and gentlemen, please get off the airplane as quickly as possible. Yeah. And they're going, yeah, I first need mine's in the overhead bin up by the lavatory. Jesus. Yeah. I mean, what are these people? This is just mind boggling to me. And, you know, and as we talked about offline, you know, as a, I'm, <laughs> I'm a pretty regular airline traveler. All right. And and I get I get annoyed simply by the fact that people hop up out of their seats, you know, before the seatbelt light goes off. You right. Know? I mean, right. You know, it's like you know, people are. It, it's just amazing that people don't have the com- This to me, this is just common sense. Maybe it's not. Maybe the average person isn't knowledgeable enough to know that it's still a very dangerous situation. But uh, you know, and, and so this this uh, this uh, LaGuardia Delta story of people going for their luggage then then brought to the surface stories of of other evacuations like this, where people do this apparently routinely, and it's just like, you know, we got to get the word out there. This is this is not smart. You know, I mean, it's like it it was. Um, what's his name? Um, um, oh gosh, the uh, the uh, airplane that crashed in Idaho after limping along for so long. Um, help me, uh, Al, Al Haynes. Al Haynes, all right. And I, and, and it, you know, he spent years after that crash going around telling that story. Um, and and I found it to be incredibly valuable. And the big the big message, the big moral that I got out of Al Haynes' story was that that we can participate in our own survival here. Um, you need to be smart, even as a passenger, about being ready. You know, I mean, just like you know, listen to the uh, the uh, the safety announcements and look around you and figure out where the exit is relative to your seat and and don't go for your bag. You know, and uh, I mean, just like I'm sorry, I'm rambling here, but this was just a, no, I, I, I totally uh, the get thing. It. And the word we gotta get the word out. I mean, we gotta like tell people if you're traveling on an airline or use common sense here because you need to save your life. You know, and more important, you need to not not endanger my life. Darn it. Right, because yeah, you know. Well, there was another issue with this too that uh, a couple of uh, folks pointed out to me, and that's the fact that only two of eight eg- exits appeared to be functional. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the FAA runs evacuation tests on these airplanes, which they do with live bodies in a you know in a compliant cabin. Uh, they 
disable half the exits on the theory that half of them will be non-functional in, in a crash, or there may be fire on one side or water, and you don't want to open that side. In this case, they had fuel leaking out of the wing on the left side, and only half the exits on the right side were functional. Right. Well, uh, were they, were they the not tail, functional? The tail exit. I'm not sure that they could get out the tail. Yeah. Were, were they not functional, or were <laughs> they just not available because of the orientation of the aircraft? It uh, looked like uh, at least one of them was not functional Okay, uh, because it wasn't being used. Yeah. Uh, and the one, the, the galley door, as it's commonly called, on the starboard side up behind the cockpit, yeah, that would have that would have been a good place for, for the slide, and it would have put you out on the rocky shore. Right. I'm not sure if that and, would have, yeah. And, and, and if the puppy had been on fire, which yeah. fortunately it was not, uh, damn straight, that water would be fine with me, baby. Well, yeah, right. There, there's that. But uh, Yeah, anyways. the water would, you know, yeah. temporarily okay with me. <laughs> you know, the yeah. whole psychology of this is, is really interesting. I mean, you've got um, passengers who are cheated like cattle. Uh, before they even get to the airplane, okay, they either, you know, keep your belongings together, get through security, get to the gate, get on the airplane, stow your personal belongings under your seat in the overhead, whatever, sit down and shut up. Um, and then and, and, you know, at the other end, it's, you know, once you come, once the airplane comes to a complete stop and the, the captain, captain speaking, hits the ding-dong, and, and the seatbelt signs go up, go off. Everybody just, you know, automatically explodes and stands up and crowds the aisles and waits for the gate to open, I mean, waits for the front door to open and people to, to line off. That can take easily 10 minutes, okay? Yeah. Um, in my experience, anyway, sometimes longer. So all these people are accustomed to... You know the norm of of air travel, and it's hurry up and wait, and so they get to the point where yeah, this is not a normal uh, uh, exit from the aircraft. We're not at a gate. We're um, you know we've got all these slides going off, and all the flight attendants are yelling crap and and all this kind of stuff. All they really know, and they're just reverting back to habit. All they really know is to grab their personal belongings. Yeah and shuffle off the airplane following the person in front of them. Mm-hmm. And you know, from, from, from a couple of standpoints, I get it. Um, another thing going on here is, uh, and someone in that, on that, um, um, that site we were playing with, we're bouncing back and forth on um, offline, had, had pointed out, I said, you know, if the airlines would you know, come up with a, a series or a set uh, uh, protocol where, you know, if you have to abandon the airplane on a runway or on a taxiway or something like that, um, how you get your stuff back, how you 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 get your personal belongings returned to you, the process, the timing, and all of this kind of thing, there is no information out there uh, from airlines to passengers on how that might occur. Now, I totally get that it's going to be different in many situations, um, but there still is no guidance from airlines on how that might occur you've got somebody who's who's got a business appointment and part of his business appointment is um data that's in his laptop and his laptop is in the overhead and all he knows is he's okay he or she is okay 
and he or she can see daylight outside the airplane, and he or she is going to be there in like 20 seconds, and you know another five seconds to get my laptop out of the overhead and start moving towards the exit is going to save me a lot of grief on the back end, and I'll still be able to make my appointment downtown mm -hmm. if nothing else happens. Yeah, yeah I'm going to grab my laptop back. So I don't know how you fix that. I I totally get, and I'm I'm the last person probably to uh, unhitch my seatbelt uh, when the airplane arrives at the gate. Um, so you know, the bottom line is I don't know what I would do. You know, if if carriers would perhaps explain a little bit better the process yeah. by they use to return personal belongings. To passengers, they would not perhaps be so inclined to try to grab them perhaps, in the event yeah. of a for real evacuation. Yeah, yeah it, it is a bit of a mess, but uh, yeah, I, I just, yeah. you know, it's like, you know, I mean, okay. You got to pay attention and you got to be prepared to save your own life in these kinds of situations. And uh, Well, you do. And, and there's a lot of, how should we, how, there are a lot of people who aren't thinking clearly in, in a situation like this. And uh, they may or may not be a part of the problem. One of the interesting things here is looking at the various pictures uh, from this New Jersey com, uh, I should say NJ.com um, story. There's a series of images uh, uh, here uh, taken obviously by different people at different, from different vantage points at different times. And one of them, for example, clearly shows the tail cone still attached to the airplane with a uh, uh, crash airport management vehicles uh, near the airplane uh, parked next to it. Uh, and then a, a subsequent image shows the tail cone having been popped off. Mm -hmm. uh, the tail cone on, on this class of aircraft, MD-80, DC-9 uh, 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 series, uh, is designed to pop off. It's designed as an emergency exit. Ah, uh, okay. Nice. Um, and... Um, um, the left, you know, looking at the left wing, left wing is still attached. I can't tell how much of the left wing is still attached uh, when it, when the airplane came to rest. Um, but I see uh, also, um, for example, in some of these images, I see both over wing exits on the starboard side of the aircraft open. Uh, but I don't see, I think maybe one exit on the port side of the aircraft is open. But I don't see any... Uh, emergency slides having been deployed, I don't see um, the ca the main cabin doors having been opened. Uh, I don't know what's going on here, and it, it, it this is going to be an interesting one, not only from the standpoint of why this occurred, but <clears throat> the uh, the evacuation and uh, um, study of the process of getting people off of the airplane. Yeah, it will be. It will also. be. Hey, before I completely forget to do this, let me let me say uh, welcome, folks, to <laughs> Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. Uh, this is uh, I'm Jack Hodgson, and I'm coming to you here from a. Uh, it was actually raining the other day, but now it's snowing. Oh my gosh, uh, uh, Papa Papa, New Hampshire. Um, we're all trying How to. How like, unusual. We're all just trying to control our breathing and not like you know have hang anxiety attacks about the fact that it's snowing yet again. Um, it's only forecast to snow, not not even. Hardly who, do, who do you who do you mean all pale face all, all of us no all of us new englanders who are just like in shock uh, well and i escaped a lot of it i mean the, you know people who had to ride out the entire winter up here in new england are really like losing their minds when the forecast the other day was for up as much as three inches of snow this weekend they just like i mean twitter went crazy it's like no but uh 
it, it's been raining and the snow is starting to starting to go away a little bit. Uh, it's gotten anyways for New England. It's actually turning out okay. There's still a lot of snow on the ground, but uh, but uh, we're ready. We're ready for it to be spring for sure. And uh, and I'm here in, in our virtual hangar talking to my two good friends who are both in like disgustingly nice weather places right now. Uh, let's see now. First, uh, from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida, is Jeb Burnside. Hi, Jeb. How are you doing this morning? I'm I'm fine. I'm I'm warm and and cozy and. Uh... Uh, looking at a partly cloudy day here in the 80s. Yeah, thanks so, thanks so much for that. Uh, <laughs> I was going to thank you for getting up early, but now forget it. Uh, no, we're, we're uh, contrary to our normal plan. We're actually recording on Sunday morning here, and uh, and, and, and you are notoriously really not a morning person, yeah, Jeb. So you're really lucky. I remembered. Uh, yeah, well, that's because I was sending out me- reminder messages for like every every half day for the last two days or something like that. But uh, yeah, I, I almost forgot. I mean, it was like nine o'clock this morning, and we went, oh, geez, that's right. It's a uh, an hour from now. So, uh, so anyways, hi. And also here in the virtual hangar, my other good pal is, uh, from, uh, Wichita, Kansas, the air capital of the world, Dave Hicken. <laughs> hi, David. How you doing? Uh, doing lovely. I hear, uh, you know, it sounds like things are going great in Wichita these days. There was some sort of spirit hour systems, which I consider to be kind of the, I don't know, is, is, is the, uh, canary in the coal mine of aviation in Wichita. And, uh, they, they, I keep hearing good things about spirit arrow. Is it spirit, spirit, spirit arrow systems, aero yeah, systems who, who make pieces, parts for things like Boeing's and other things. Right. And, uh, well, they make the entire 737 yeah. fuselage and apparently business and, is good. Yep. Oh, look at uh, how how many uh, the seven three sevens. Boeing's pushing the rate up again, yeah. uh, and I think they're already around forty a month. Uh, really? Wow. They also do the uh, section forty one for the four seven four hundred, and I think the four seven dash eight, and the struts and the cells for the four sevens. And wing parts and struts and nacelles for several other airliners. They do work for Airbus. They do work for Gulfstream. And then they put uh, them all on trains and send them to someplace else, right? Well, some of it, uh, like the work they do for the uh, 787 Dreamliner, goes into uh, a great big uh, 747 converted into a, a freighter. Oh, yeah, right. And, okay. And gets flown to the assembly points. Uh, as you might remember, that freighter from uh, incorrectly landing on Chabara's 6,000 foot uh, yeah, was... l- lighter weight rated runway back last winter, uh, or the winter before, I guess. And, uh, uh, but yes, a lot of it goes by, uh, a lot of it goes by train, a lot of it goes by air. Yeah. And so let's get it over with. What do you expect the temperature to be there this afternoon? Uh, 75 if it hits forecast and then, uh, creeping up a little warmer Monday and in the eighties on Tuesday, they're saying, yeah. we're which just... gives me paranoia about when our next store storm will be here in New England. We're thrilled about the fact that it might get to 45 this afternoon. So anyways, I don't know how you do that. Man. I, I'm not sure myself. Just but, don't uh, get it. Yeah. Anyways, what's going on elsewhere in our aviation here? Um, story in the news last week about, um, ADSB and, and LSAs and and uh, and I I don't know much about this. Is the FAA now trying to extend the 2020 deadline to LSAs as well? Is that what's going on here? Well, well it all, LSAs it's always were already yeah. they were already subject to that deadline. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't realize they were. I thought okay. Well, then what's the story? Then what did FAA just say? Who wants to talk about this? I'm not sure well, what the FAA just said. Hang on. Here's what, the FAA, here's what the FAA is doing. When 
FAR 1, which is the defining document for uh, uh, light sport aircraft, uh, came into existence, uh, what, 10 years ago now? Like that, yeah. Uh, uh, this was an experiment in letting an industry regulate itself and approve itself with the FAA serving to do reviews. And now they do audits of the factories to make sure they're doing things according to the compliance paperwork that the, the manufacturers provide. Part of this process eliminated the potential for field approval changes to the airplane under Form 337. Okay. There's also no supplemental type certificate process for this because it's not approved under a normal type certificate. Okay. Or one of the standard type certificate categories. Okay. And so, so if if you want to change anything on these airplanes, yeah, it has to come through the manufacturer. The manufacturer has to approve it, put it on the approved equipment list, show that they've tested it and that it doesn't do any harm. And then find a way to let their dealers or the factory install those or the qualified maintenance people that have passed certain training to install those upgrades. So all of this stuff has to come through the manufacturer. Now, when LSA became a category, the uh, ADSB out rule was not yet finalized. And I'm sure that nobody involved in writing the ADSB rules really stopped and thought, oh, how are we going to accom accommodate the uh, special light sport and experimental light sport aircraft categories? Uh, because they can't do it under STC and they can't do it under field approval. Uh, so now this is really just the FAA kind of sounding the alarm bell with the manufacturers of light sport airplanes saying, oh, okay, we want your people to have an opportunity to comply with this regulation because the regulation doesn't specify what equipment you fly, just what airspace in which you need it. Right. So it doesn't say, well, this is for part 23 and part 25 only. It says, if you need to use this airspace, you have to have this equipment after 2020. So the FAA is first said they were going to allow performance compliant but non-TSO'd equipment to be installed in LSA and experimental amateur built aircraft. All right. And let that be an approved installation for those aircraft. Then they reminded under this change uh, that came out on March 11th or this document, uh, 10th or the 11th, that the manufacturers control their customers' access to these upgrades by whether the manufacturer has approved a path to upgrade the equipment to ADSB out. Mm -hmm. So they're saying, hey, LSA manufacturers, you need to get on the stick, get engaged in this, test some of this equipment and provide your customers with a path to compliance. That's no more. That that's the alpha and omega of what's going on here. I see. Yeah. Yeah. Well, l yeah. let me ask this question quickly, and then Jeb, you can jump in here. Um, is it so? Is it possible? I mean, I, I'm not sure if this is an LSA question or or a traditional aircraft question, but is it possible to comply with the 2020 mandate 
using without going any sort of STCs or any other certification? Can you can you comply with the 2020 mandate with simply like the equivalent of a handheld GPS? The way we've been doing with handheld GPSs and iPads and other sorts of of sort of temporarily installed gear. The, the, the quick answer is no. You can't comply yeah. that way. All right. No. You need all right. I didn't. I, I wasn't aware of that. I thought that there was a simple way to comply with this without going the whole well, nine yards. Simple is a relative term. Yeah, but yeah, okay. And, and, and inexpensive is a relative term. Yeah, right. Um, there are any number of ways to comply with the ADSB 2020 rule. Uh, 2020, of course, being uh, January one, 2020, of course, being the date on which it goes into effect. Right. Um. For a certified airplane, let's take my debonair as an example, um, any equipment uh, permanently, and I underscore the word permanently, added to that airplane is subject to uh, the normal certification rules. Mm-hmm. There's, there, it's, if it's a minor alteration, you can get by um, with a logbook entry. If it's a major alteration, you need um, a Form 337. If it's um, a very complicated major alteration, you need probably a a supplemental type certificate, which is not coincidentally also done in part on on a Form 337. Um, The FAA um, says that for my airplane to comply with the 2020 ADSBA mandate, um, I must have uh, compliant equipment. I must have equipment that complies with the TSO. Right. The TSO being technical standard order for uh, ADSB out equipment. Um, let, 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 comply is maybe not the right word. Meets the TSO. I think is meets the standards of the TSO. I think is is the real the really important phrase here. Now that equipment that meets the TSO can be in fact TSO equipment. It can also be equipment, in the case of an experimental, um, that does not meet um, that, that standard. And I could argue to the FISDO that uh, a non-TSO piece of equipment that otherwise meets the TSO uh, would be legal to install in my certified airplane. That would be an interesting argument. Um, and, I, and I take it you're not aware of anybody making that argument yet. I'm not aware of anybody making that argument yet. Yeah. Um, with LSA aircraft, as, as Dave correctly points out, it gets a little bit more complicated in that there is no type certificate. There is no Form 337 process. There is no supplemental type certificate process for an LSA. That's because of the ways in which LSA aircraft, uh, ESL, ELSA and SLSA, uh, are designed, manufactured, and certificated, uh, or, or I should say get their airworthiness. Uh, and that's based on uh, the manufacturer's certification that the design and construction complies with the ASTM standards. Uh, there's nothing in the ASTM standards regarding ADSB, to my knowledge. Uh, ergo, uh, for an LSA to be uh, compliant with um, well, let, let's back up. Um, part of the deal with the LSA uh, standards and, and, and the ASTM standards is that the manufacturer says it meets, in this configuration, it meets those standards. Um, 
You start adding equipment to it, however, and it's no longer going to meet those standards simply because that new equipment has not been considered by the manufacturer and approved by the manufacturer for that particular airframe. Um, we see that in a very simple um, 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 fashion where some LSAs are not allowed to fly at night. Mm -hmm. uh, many LSAs are not allowed to conduct instrument uh, operations. Mm -hmm. And those are decisions made mainly by the manufacturer right. when he or she develops the aircraft. Um, the equipment list, all of that kind of thing is, is approved by the manufacturer. And as long as the airplane um, retains that configuration, it's, it's completely legal and airworthy. Once, you know, let's say um, uh, you, you, you were delivered a, a carbon cub or something like that, that's LSA, uh, an SLSA, and you want to put a Garmin 530 in it, uh, there's no paperwork path right. to do that in the field. Uh, you can bolt it in, uh, but it's not the airplane suddenly is not airworthy until and unless the manufacturer provides data uh, and approval for the uh, 530 to be installed. So if I understand you correctly, this FAA thing, announcement or whatever it was in the last week or so, was essentially the FAA poking the LSA manufacturers in the side saying you need to get, get yeah, going? Yep. That's basically yep. it. How much, we need to move on here, but how much of a hardship is it going to be for the LSA manufacturers to go through this process? It depends. Yeah. I mean, is it liable to be something that's just impossible, that they just don't have the no. resources to do? Or? No, it could be actually pretty simple, depending on what equipment that they opt to look at. Uh, because there's uh, there are now on the market uh, uh, available a, a transponder that has the uh, 1090ES uh, extended squitter channel to deliver ADS-B out and either can come with a GPS engine that meets the TSO or be attached to a, a GPS receiver that meets the TSO and supply the position data. Uh, there are some one-box installations that would take care of this, but of uh, the uh, it's, it's strictly up to the manufacturer to, to pick what equipment that they want to work through and offer it up as an option after right. they do the appropriate test. All right. But it could be enormously expensive if they decided that they wanted to put a, uh, a an IFR uh, WAS GPS in uh, that also gives you a moving map and a path to ADSB in. Uh, because now you're automatically adding the cost to that GPS receiver. Mm -hmm. uh, but you don't need that to meet the out standard. Okay. Jed, so, any uh, final thoughts on this? Yeah, you had, you had asked about, um, for example, portable ADSB. Um, no such, let me rephrase this, portable ADSB out. Um, no such animal exists. Okay. Um, and probably, at least in the foreseeable future, there won't be such an animal simply because. Um, of the constraints um, the FAA wants to see on um, demonstrating the accuracy and reliability of the um, ADSB out signal mm -hmm. 
for obvious reasons sure. because they make ATC and, and all kinds of other decisions based on that position of data. So the, the concept of, of hooking up an ADSB out uh, transmitter to your iPad and going merrily on down the road knowing that you're compliant with ADSB in 2020 ain't happening right now. Right. right. Okay. And yeah. Real quick and dirty, Jack. You ask about cheap ways to uh, get STC or uh, uh, field-approved equipment in your airplane. Uh, sometimes the equipment has an approved model list that covers hundreds of airplanes, and usually, when that's the case, the STC for that AML comes with the equipment, so right. the cost is basically built in and covered. I see. Okay. Continues to be interesting. ADSB. We've been talking about ADSB for a while, up, upwards of nine years now. I mean, I think we talked about ADSB on one of the first couple of episodes of this podcast, you know, possibly years possibly. ago. It's uh, yeah, and we'll probably still be talking about it a little bit in twenty twenty one. Yeah, yeah. And and a subject for future uh, discussion. All right, is uh, does the twenty twenty ADSB requirement apply to drones? Oh. right now it does not. Okay. In part, be, in part because um, those aircraft are not allowed in airspace where ADSB is required, if that makes any sense. No, it does. Yeah, no, I, I, okay. yeah it makes now, lots of they're, sense. They're relatively now, low to the ground, is what you're saying. Well, that plus you have to have ATC permission to operate them in uh, Bravo, Charlie, or Delta airspace. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, of course, ATC is going to want to know... Um, where and how they might be tracked, and that's where you'll get tripped up. Um, personally, and this is something that um, uh, covered in an in a article in the April issue of Aviation Safety Magazine uh, about this drone, this new drone regulation or proposed regulation, and how all this is going to work. Um, the question is, uh, is this or is this not going to increase the risk of mid-air collisions between aircraft with nice, warm, pink bodies in them and drones? Mm-hmm. And the answer is we don't know because there's no data. Right. Um, but part and parcel of all this is why can't drones that are going to be mixing it up in the airspace with um, the pink-bodied airplanes in aircraft why can't those drones have ADSB? And the answer is, maybe they can, but right now there is no uh, chipset, uh, power supply, antenna uh, um, configurations that make it cheap, easy, and light, uh, light in weight for drones to have that capability. Right now, we're talking about drones that weigh 55 pounds or less. If we start talking about drones that weigh a thousand pounds, I think ADSB will be part of that mix. Yeah. Okay. Um, and we will start talking about drones that weigh a thousand pounds at some point. Oh, sure. Sure. Absolutely. Neville, you have control of the board. Select a category. Disclaimers for 100. The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are appearing as this. Neville. What is private individuals? Correct. Select again. Disclaimers for 200. Their comments do not necessarily reflect these. Neville. What is the opinions of the organizations they work for? Yes. Select again. Disclaimers for 300. Anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously this. 
Neville. What is very general? That's it. Disclaimers for 400. You should always remember your training, consider your situation, and fly this. Neville. What is the aircraft? Yes. Select. Disclaimers for 500. But you knew this. Robert. What's a lineys? No, Wendy. What is the punchline? No, Neville. What is that? Correct, but you knew that. Congratulations, Neville. You have swept the category. Hi, this is Jack. We've said it before, and it bears repeating, that maybe the most pleasant surprise of doing this podcast all these years has been meeting our listeners at fly-ins and just wandering around at airports. You talking with us and sharing your aviation experiences has helped us broaden our knowledge and enjoyment of flying. Thank you. And I'd be lying if I didn't say that we also appreciate the financial support we get from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big, big help. So thanks for listening, and please make sure you track us down and say hi at the next fly-in. Um, another crash that was in the news in the last couple of weeks that, uh, for obvious reasons, got a lot of coverage was uh, Harrison Ford. Um, Harrison Ford, uh, the uh, uh, motion picture actor and uh, aviation enthusiast and, and aviation evangelist, uh, very, very involved with our, our, our uh, beloved organization, EAA and others, um, was uh, uh, attempting to conduct a flight out of uh, Santa Monica Airport in California, near, near L.A. or part of the L.A. area. Um, his Ryan P-22, which is an op- open cockpit, low-wing tail dragger, um, and uh, apparently on takeoff uh, during climb-out, uh, he lost engine power or lost part of engine power and uh, attempted to turn back to the airport, uh, was unable to make the airport, uh, clipped a tree and, and came down very hard on, an, on a, a golf fairway uh, right adjacent to the airport. Um, he was hurt fairly seriously, not apparently, according to the reports, not in a life-threatening fashion, but the, the whole subject of his condition is actually a little bit mysterious right now. There's not been an awful lot of reports um, other than family members saying he's okay. Um, and, uh, and there's been a fair amount of conversation, as you might imagine, about this crash and about, about Harrison Ford's, uh, uh, choices here. Um, you guys have any thoughts on this? Uh, have I described it accurately? And, uh, um, yeah, what do you yeah. think? Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of discussion about, you know, on one level, Harrison Ford managed to save his life. All right. And, and get the airplane on the ground, albeit with some serious injuries. Um, good for him. All right. I mean, that's, you know, congratulations. But there's a lot of discussion on the net as to whether or not it was wise for him to try and make the quote-unquote impossible turn. Um, was it wise of him to try and turn back to the airport? All right. <laughs> and nobody who's ever flown out of Santa Monica would ask that question. Now, and I, I was going to point that out because I actually went and I looked at the satellite picture of, of the airport and that area, and it is, you know, it is the very definition of densely populated. I mean, there, other than this airport, there's basically nowhere you're going to go. Um, the golf course. I'm sorry, other than the golf course, right? Yeah. Yeah, the golf course is parallel to the to the uh, operations area there. It's not clear uh, to me how far off the end of the runway he was when he had to make these choices. Could he have gone straight ahead onto the golf course is my first well, question, I guess. Once again, the NTSB comes to our rescue. Yeah, what does it okay. say? Um, and first the of all, NTSB this is, comes to our rescue. Okay. Yeah. yeah. This is just the, the preliminary report on this event. Um, 
So the pilot initiated a left turn back towards the runway. The airplane subsequently struck the top of a tall tree prior to impacting the ground in an open area of a golf course about 800 feet southwest of the approach end of runway three. Mm-hmm. So my understanding is he departed, or well, the NTSB confirms that, took off from runway 21, uh, pilot advised of an engine failure and requested an immediate return. Um, the ATC tape, which is available out there, um, uh, controller immediately cleared the aircraft to land on 21. The pilot requested runway 3. He was immediately cleared to land on runway 3, uh, but obviously didn't have the energy, the altitude, the airspeed, whatever, to, to get back to the, the, uh, the piece of pavement. Um, the golf course is probably the only place around there, yeah. uh, in that area anyway, to put it down. Right. If he'd not hit the tall tree, he, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation. Well, yeah. we'd be having this conversation, but it would have ended much more. Exactly. You know. Yeah, the airplane would have been able to uh, get towed back to Santa Monica. The, the engine problem would have been sorted out, and right. it might be actually flying again by now. Yeah, right. Uh, and Harrison would be talking to his agent and his manager about how to negotiate his next film so that it doesn't preclude him from flying for years. Yeah, well, apparently his wife is the big big blockade there, but that's another story altogether. Yeah, I don't believe everything you read in, in on uh, TMZ or something. Yeah, my <laughs> understanding always my understanding's always been that she's been pretty supportive of Callista Flockhart. Really? Okay. Yeah. Well, anyways. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, Ford bragged about Callista the way I bragged about Annie. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. Well, all right, then I'll yeah. take that all back. But... Uh, yeah, it's an interesting thing. How much are we going to learn about this as time goes on? How much might we learn about this? Or is this just going to be a little bit of a mystery? Not a mystery exactly, but just something where... I, you know, I don't know why we wouldn't learn uh, everything there is to know. First of all, <clears throat> we know that he was seriously injured, according to the NTSB. Um, the aircraft sustained substantial damage, according to the NTSB. Um does anybody that's know? I'm sorry. Nominal. That's that's all nominal information that we would expect to obtain from any other accident or incident sure. uh, uh, happening in, in the United States airspace. Uh, if, this is a preliminary report, uh, and I think, given who he is, um, not only will the engine be uh, um, examined for reasons why it failed. But that will also become known, and it will be part of the final report. And I say not just because, and I say because of who he is, not because he's a, a famous celebrity, but because um, everything that Harrison Ford does about aviation, he does correctly. And um, you, you, that's- he, he, he will want to know, and he will want others to know why and how the engine failed. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's my opinion. Yeah, no, I, I and I and I can see where that comes from. I, 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 yeah, I can believe that absolutely. Yeah, he's got too much investment, if you will, in um, aviation. Sure, I mean, and but that, too you, much. That, he's too visible in this industry. Yeah, and, but to you make hide it, anything. Yeah, but you also make it sound like a profit and loss kind of decision. I, I think he genuinely cares about aviation. And that's, about my, that's my. That's my point. Yeah, that's right. my point. And, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I think that's exactly what Jeb's saying because the guy. I mean, we know other and know of other celebrities who fly, who fly themselves. Uh, one or two of them are 
fairly visible and active with their flying. Uh, most of them are not. Uh, I don't know of anyone on the current scene who's more uh, openly and out in public uh, participating in general aviation at the at the level that uh, Harrison Ford does today. Uh, you know, his work with the EAA and the Young Eagles and uh, the uh, gathering of Eagles and the uh, uh, big awards banquet out in L.A. every year. Uh, uh, you know, the guy went from getting hooked working on a, a movie about a pilot in the South Pacific to being every bit as big a junkie as anyone else I've ever known. And it's not the thrill seeking that people so often attribute uh, to aviators that drives him. It's a sense of satisfaction and the freedom to travel uh, that I've always gotten as the uh, prevailing catalyst to his uh, uh, love of aviation. Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, um, I guess I'll say congratulations to Harrison Ford for getting back on the ground more or less safely. I'm sorry that he was he was injured as badly as he was, but uh, clearly kept his head about him and uh, and uh, in in a really amazingly comp- dense area um, found a place to set down his airplane. And uh, congratulations yeah. to him, and we wish him I well would, in would, his recovery. He, he, he's yeah, he he's been operating out of Santa Monica for a number of years, and uh, um, I'm sure that um, he is. Uh, thought about and planned for where he would set something down mm-hmm. if something bad occurred. And uh, my thinking is he simply implemented that plan. Yeah. Um, so Sounds good. Sounds yeah. good. Shout-outs. What do we got here? Are we at shout-outs already? We are at shout-outs already, huh? And uh, um, I want to start with uh, a, a shout-out to the uh, Fantasy of Flight, uh, Kermit Weeks' operation down in Florida, which sadly uh, closed its doors to the public um, a few years back for a variety of reasons. Um, apparently, they've kind of reorganized the whole thing, and they are now preparing to, at least in some sort of uh, limited fashion, reopen it um, to the public. Um, this is a story from uh, GA News. Uh, Fantasy of Flight reopens plans for Act 3 underway. Um, after a year of dormancy, Fantasy of Flight, Kermit Weeks's vintage aircraft attraction in Polk County, Florida, has reopened to the public in a limited fashion. Quote, unquote, uh, quote we have opened a small-scale museum housed in our former maintenance hangar, explains Candace Stevens, operations and events manager. We will have 11 to 15 aircraft on static display rotating in and out. So it goes on. Um, it's uh, This is a great sign. I, I, it was really sad when uh, when uh, Kermit and company decided that they needed to close this uh, this uh, facility um, or at least scale it back and uh, and uh, I, I I was hopeful that it would reopen I, I didn't expect that it would would reopen this quickly so this yeah. is, this is great and just it's in time big, for big sun deal. and fun and uh, yeah big deal um, so uh, that that'll be great I, I I always regretted that I never made it there before it closed so I think I'm going to try real hard to get there this spring when we're down there for mm-hmm. for sun and fun we'll see whether that can happen or not but uh, congratulations to Kermit Week and his whole crew for weeks and his whole crew for uh, for uh, you know making some progress here this is awesome. Yeah. This yeah. is awesome. Congratulations, Kermit. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Any shout outs, you guys? What do you got? Dave? Uh, the shout out to my friends at the local uh, uh, Jayhawk wing of the Commemorative Air Force for uh, uh, what, by all reports, was a very successful uh, salute to Valor banquet and show uh, last Saturday here in Wichita. 
Uh, I believe it came a few seats short of selling out. Uh, guest speaker was one of the uh, folks from CAF headquarters down in Texas. Uh, and uh, feedback was really good. Glad to see uh, people stepping up. Very nice. Yeah, congratulations mm-hmm. to them. Um, two, two things, one uh, somewhat lengthy, one really quick. Yeah. Um, on May 8 of this year, um, we will see over the, in the skies over Washington, D.C., the, quote, arsenal of democracy flyover. This is unquote. just mind-boggling. Go ahead. It yeah. really is. But this is something that commemorates the 70th anniversary of uh, VE Day, the uh-huh. end of World War II in Europe. Uh, it's um, going to happen on Friday, May 8, 2015. Um, you will, you, oh, in the skies over Washington, D.C., you will see what is being built as one of the most diverse arrays of World War II aircraft ever assembled. Um, the, um, we're looking at scores of airplanes, of, of World War II era airplanes, um, um, a several-day event. Um, it's it's a big deal, yeah. and uh, um, those of you who, have, who may not be aware of this, you heard it here first on, on Uncontrolled Airspace, but you will hear much more of this, and uh, I'm sure there will be uh, a lot of coverage in, in the traditional aviation media as well as the general media um, uh, during the event and in the aftermath. You will yeah. see a lot of pictures and videos uh, of this I would uh, coming up, but this is why. Saying um, in the date? May 8. Okay. Which is a Friday. Yeah, rumor has it that uh, the local CAF hangar may have an airplane in that parade. Uh-huh. And, uh, uh-huh. Because right now their hangar's got a uh, PT-23 and a uh, Cessna Bobcat. Uh, cool. Uh, do, we know, do we know what airport they're staging out of? That would be an interesting. Several. Oh, they Several. are. Okay. So it's- yeah. Manassas for the bombers. Um uh, Culpepper for other aircraft, uh, probably two or three other aircraft. This is a big deal. This is like really? trying to do, um, trying to compress uh, the Oshkosh uh, air show and, and flybys and everything like that into one afternoon. Really? What organization is doing the uh, Airbus operations? Do you know? <sighs> Who's coordinating this thing? Uh, let's. I'm hoping it's a real here. air show operation and not some branch of the government that decided they know what they're no, doing. No, this is, this is not government. This is, um, uh, there's um, uh, on this website, the www.flyoveronword.org. Um, Stephen Brown, Pete Bunce, John Cudahy, Paul Rinaldi, Doug Rosendahl, uh, several of those names I know and recognize. Uh, one of them, Pete Bunce, is president of the General Aviation Manufacturers Association. Um, there uh, is a lot of uh, uh, heavy-duty people behind this. This will happen. It will be done correctly. It will be a great thing. Sounds cool. Sounds yeah. yeah, the amount of coordination just on the security level alone is yeah. stunning. Yeah, so. really. So, anyways, Jeb, you had another one? Yeah, real quickly. Um, let me find it here. Um Okay, yeah. Um, uh, we shouldn't do this, but we, we, we're, on occasion we look at websites like BuzzFeed. Oh, okay, all right, yes. <clears throat> and, and, and there's a picture um, that was, was run on BuzzFeed uh, earlier this month of a woodpecker. Ah, uh, yes, okay. With a baby weasel on <laughs> yes, its back. On its back. Okay. I've seen this and, picture, and, yes. Yes. 
And um, the the picture was captured by a guy who obviously was in the right place at the right time. Um, and uh, the the initial thinking was that the woodpecker was giving the weasel a ride. Yeah, okay. Uh, uh, but no, it, it turns out that, in fact, the weasel had attacked yes. this woodpecker. Uh, trying to, you know, I don't know, consider it to be his his, his midday meal. Yeah. Um, the weasel, of course, in this picture is a little bit smaller than the woodpecker, so I don't know how all this is going to work. Anyway, the weasel apparently jumped on the woodpecker. The woodpecker decided, "Hey, I'm out of here. I'm I'm going to do something I can't I can do that the weasel can't, and that's fly." Yeah. And the picture, of course, caught the two of them uh, in midair. And my thinking is that this is not the last time you will see this weasel. Um, I think weasel, this weasel, who I have, I have nicknamed Orville, um, <laughs> yeah, okay. likes, likes this. Oh, you think the weasel okay. will return? The picture is I think already... the weasel will be back. I think yeah, he no. will jump on other birds in, in the near future. Ah, okay. Uh, and if he has not done so already. Yeah. We may or may not have a historical record of that, but I think Orville will be back. I think he likes this flying thing, and I think he'll do it again. Orville the flying weasel is what you're yes. saying. Okay. All right. Well, th- there's already been a slew of, of, of viral Photoshopped versions of this picture with uh, all sorts of things, either also up atop this woodpecker or following it in flight. Things like X-wing fighters or, uh-huh, you know, uh-huh, you, you name uh-huh. it. But, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Orville the uh, or- Orville the flying weasel. All right. Well, there, yeah. you, there you go. There you and there, go. You, and there's the title for this. And there's episode. the title for the episode. Absolutely. Doesn't get any better than that. Uh, what else? That it, Je- that's, uh, David. That's, and- that's, that's that checks my boxes. All right. Stick me with a fork. I'm done. Thank you very much, boys. It's always fun to chat with you, uh, and uh, uh, we need to do it more often. But that's a whole other story. Uh, Thanks to you guys. Jeb Burnside, uh, appreciate your uh, taking the time, especially so early on the morning. Turn, talk about turning the key before noon. Oh, uh, man. Jeb Burnside, a freelance aviation writer and editor, serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. What you been working on, Jeb? Anything fun? Uh, as, as I mentioned a moment ago, just put the finishing, well, just just put to bed uh, uh, the uh, April issue of Aviation Safety Magazine. Uh, a lengthy, uh, detailed article in there regarding um, the... Uh, Midair collision risk of the uh, recently announced uh, proposed rule on uh, lightweight drones. Uh, a couple of other uh, uh, interesting articles in there, including one by Mr. Higdon. Mm, okay. Oh, no. Um, yeah, it ain't, yeah. So. it ain't, but <laughs> I, I can say that, but it, but it is. Yeah. Um, Sounds uh, good. Discussing the uh, MU2, the Mitsubishi twin turboprop, and how. Uh, uh, industry and, and uh, operators got together and managed to uh, reverse the uh, safety trend involving that aircraft. Um, a lot of good information in that. And I'm gearing up for the next one. Uh, so uh, gearing up for some other things and uh, uh, enjoying the warm weather here, too. Sounds good. Where can people find about you and this stuff on the Internet? Uh, AviationSafetyMagazine.com is a great place to start. And uh, I'm sometimes on the Twitter machine, uh, Burnside J. And Dave, thanks thanks to you for uh, getting up early this morning. Uh, it's really early for you because you're you're a time zone away. Um, but I've been up for two hours. This is normal. <laughs> See, don't let Jeb know that. It'll, it'll drive him crazy. Uh, Dave Higdon, an aviation photographer, an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's Ab Buyer Magazine. What have you been working on, David? Obviously, well, you got uh, these for Jeb there. Huh? Apparently, I got a cover story in this month's uh, Avionics News, looking at the uh, benefits, options, cost, and 
some of the uh, limitations of ADSBN specifically mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and how it works and what might make it attractive for you and, and what it might not. Uh, I'm going to have for the shops to look at. I'm going to have to chat with, with uh, Jeff because I thought I had the cover of that magazine. <laughs> <Okay>. But anyway, <laughs> moving right along. Uh, you guys and, uh, are once again fighting over ADSB. It just never ends. Go ahead, David. It more just there's just more in the pipeline. So sounds great. Where can people for some reason or another the last three weeks have had me busy enough that I actually won't bore you with what's been going on. Okay, all right. I'm sure it wouldn't be boring, but uh, we won't take the time this morning. I will ask you though, uh, where can people find you on the internet? Oh, uh, let's see, aea.net for the avionics news stuff. Uh, that website, uh, Mr. Burnside cited for uh, aviation safety. Uh, avbuyer.com for my work in Avbuyer, formerly World Aircraft Sales. Uh, uh, who's keeping me particularly busy these days. So uh, all in all, good things. Sounds good. Sounds good. And uh, on Twitter, Real Higdon. Real Higdon, the one and only. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. Uh, You can follow me on Twitter, uh, where I'm uh, Jack Hodgson, and uh, learn more than you ever really wanted to know about me, either at jackhodgson.com and aroundthefield.net. What was that little sigh all about? That was... No? Okay. I think that was something else altogether. Uh, it was not a response to my learning more about me than you ever really wanted to know. Yeah, right. Big thanks to the, all the folks who are uh, help us out in the background here, particularly Jeff Ward for his help with the uh, show notes and, and in the forums. Thanks to uh, Mike Morgan and Royce Earle and Jim Goldman and to the many other listeners who have helped create the UCAP disclaimer clips. Um, don't forget you can check out uh, the rest of us on the UCAP website. You can uh, chat with us directly and with many of your fellow listeners in the Uncontrolled Airspace forums and much, much more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, were you going to say something? Fight tooth and nail fight aging like crazy by flying because everybody knows time spent flying not subtracted from your lifespan bye-bye and that's enough talking let's go flying i'd like to say thank you on behalf of the group and ourselves and i hope we pass the audition 